Section 12 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Coleman. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 12. Johnson had now an opportunity of obliging his schoolfellow, Dr. James, of whom he once observed, No man brings more mind to his profession. James published this year his Medicinal Dictionary, in three volumes folio. Johnson, as I understood from him, had written, or assisted in writing, the proposals for this work, and being very fond of the study of physic, in which James was his master, he furnished some of the articles. He, however, certainly wrote for it the dedication to Dr. Mead, which is conceived with great address, to conciliate the patronage of that very eminent man. It has been circulated, I know not with what authenticity, that Johnson considered Dr. Birch as a dull writer, and said of him, Tom Birch is as brisk as a bee in conversation but no sooner does he take a pen in his hand than it becomes a torpedo to him, and benumbs all his faculties. That the literature of this country is much indebted to Birch's activity and diligence must certainly be acknowledged. We have seen that Johnson honoured him with a Greek epigram, and his correspondence with him, during many years, proves that he had no mean opinion of him. To Dr. Birch, Thursday, September twenty ninth, 1743. Sir, I hope you will excuse me for troubling you on an occasion on which I know not whom else I can apply to. I am at a loss for the lives and characters of Earl Stanhope, the two Crags, and the Minister Sunderland, and beg that you will inform me where I may find them, and send any pamphlets, etc., relating to them to Mr. Cave, to be perused for a few days by, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. His circumstances were at this time much embarrassed, yet his affection for his mother was so warm and so liberal that he took upon himself a debt of hers, which, though small in itself, was then considerable to him. This appears from the following letter which he wrote to Mr. Levitt of Lichfield, the original of which lies now before me. To Mr. Levitt, in Lichfield, December 1st, 1743. Sir, I am extremely sorry that we have encroached so much upon your forbearance with respect to the interest which a great perplexity of affairs hindered me from thinking of with that attention that I ought, and which I am not immediately able to remit to you, but will pay it, I think twelve pounds, in two months. I look upon this, and on the future interest of that mortgage, as my own debt, and beg that you will be pleased to give me directions how to pay it, and not mention it to my dear mother. If it be necessary to pay this in less time, I believe I can do it, but I take two months for certainty, and beg an answer whether you can allow me so much time. I think myself very much obliged to your forbearance, 
and shall esteem it a great happiness to be able to serve you. I have great opportunities of dispersing anything that you may think it proper to make public. I will give a note for the money, payable at the time mentioned, to any one here that you shall appoint. I am, sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Sam Johnson, at Mr. Osborne's bookseller in Gray's Inn. 1744, Itad 35. It does not appear that he wrote anything in 1744 for the Gentleman's Magazine, but the preface. His life of Baratier was now republished in a pamphlet by itself. But he produced one work this year, fully sufficient to maintain the high reputation which he had acquired. This was The Life of Richard Savage a man of whom it is difficult to speak impartially, without wondering that he was for some time the intimate companion of Johnson. For his character was marked by profligacy, insolence, and ingratitude. Yet as he undoubtedly had a warm and vigorous, though unregulated, mind, had seen life in all its varieties, and been much in the company of the statesmen and wits of his time, he could communicate to Johnson an abundant supply of such materials as his philosophical curiosity most eagerly desired. And as Savage's misfortunes and misconduct had reduced him to the lowest state of wretchedness as a writer for bread, his visits to St. John's Gate naturally brought Johnson and him together, Note. As a specimen of his temper, I insert the following letter from him to a noble lord, to whom he was under great obligations, but who, on account of his bad conduct, was obliged to discard him. The original was in the hands of the late Francis Cocaine Cust, Esquire, one of His Majesty's counsel, learned in the law. Right honourable brute and booby! I find you want, as Mr. Blank is pleased to hint, to swear away my life, that is, the life of your creditor, because he asks you for a debt. The public shall soon be acquainted with this, to judge whether you are not fitter to be an Irish evidence than to be an Irish peer. I defy and despise you. I am your determined adversary, R. S. End of note. It is melancholy to reflect that Johnson and Savage were sometimes in such extreme indigence that they could not pay for a lodging, so that they have wandered together whole nights in the streets. Yet in these almost incredible scenes of distress, we may suppose that Savage mentioned many of the anecdotes with which Johnson afterwards enriched the life of his unhappy companion, and those of other poets. He told Sir Joshua Reynolds that one night in particular, when Savage and he walked round St. James's Square for want of a lodging, they were not at all depressed by their situation, but in high spirits and brimful of patriotism, traversed the square for several hours, inveighed against the minister, and resolved they would stand by their country. 
I am afraid, however, that by associating with Savage, who was habituated to the dissipation and licentiousness of the town, Johnson, though his good principles remained steady, did not entirely preserve that conduct, for which, in days of greater simplicity, he was remarked by his friend Mr. Hector, but was imperceptibly led into some indulgencies, which occasioned much distress to his virtuous mind. That Johnson was anxious that an authentic and favourable account of his extraordinary friend should first get possession of the public attention is evident from a letter which he wrote in the Gentleman's Magazine for August of the year preceding its publication. Mr. Urban, as your collections show how often you have owed the ornaments of your poetical pages to the correspondence of the unfortunate and ingenious Mr. Savage, I doubt not but you have so much regard to his memory as to encourage any design that may have a tendency to the preservation of it from insults or calumnies. And therefore, with some degree of assurance, entreat you to inform the public that his life will speedily be published by a person who was favoured with his confidence, and received from himself an account of most of the transactions which he proposes to mention to the time of his retirement to Swansea in Wales. From that period to his death in the prison of Bristol, the account will be continued from materials still less liable to objection, his own letters, and those of his friends, some of which will be inserted in the work, and abstracts of others subjoined in the margin. It may be reasonably imagined that others may have the same design, but as it is not credible that they can obtain the same materials, it must be expected they will supply from invention the want of intelligence, and that under the title of The Life of Savage, they will publish only a novel, filled with romantic adventures and imaginary amours. You may therefore perhaps gratify the lovers of truth and wit, by giving me leave to inform them in your magazine, that my account will be published in octavo, by Mr. Roberts, in Warwick Lane. No signature. In February 1744, it accordingly came forth from the shop of Roberts, between whom and Johnson I have not traced any connection, except the casual one of this publication. In Johnson's Life of Savage, although it must be allowed that its moral is the reverse of respicere exemplar, vita morumque yobebo, a very useful lesson is inculcated to guard men of warm passions from a too free indulgence of them. And the various incidents are related in so clear and animated a manner, and illuminated throughout with so much philosophy, that it is one of the most interesting narratives in the English language. Sir Joshua Reynolds told me that upon his return from Italy he met with it in Devonshire, knowing nothing of its author, and began to read it while he was standing with his arm leaning against a chimney-piece. It seized his attention so strongly that, not being able to lay down the book till he had finished it, 
when he attempted to move, he found his arm totally benumbed. The rapidity with which this work was composed is a wonderful circumstance. Johnson has been heard to say, I wrote forty-eight of the printed octavo pages of the life of Savage at a sitting, but then I sat up all night. He exhibits the genius of Savage to the best advantage in the specimens of his poetry which he has selected, some of which are of uncommon merit. We indeed occasionally find such vigour and such point as might make us suppose that the generous aid of Johnson had been imparted to his friend. Mr. Thomas Wharton made this remark to me, and in support of it quoted from the poem entitled The Bastard, a line in which the fancied superiority of one stamped in nature's mint with ecstasy is contrasted with a regular lawful descendant of some great and ancient family, no tenth transmitter of a foolish face. But the fact is that this poem was published some years before Johnson and Savage were acquainted. It is remarkable that in this biographical disquisition there appears a very strong symptom of Johnson's prejudice against players, a prejudice which may be attributed to the following causes. First, the imperfection of his organs, which was so defective that he was not susceptible of the fine impressions which theatrical excellence produces upon the generality of mankind. Secondly, the cold rejection of his tragedy. And lastly, the brilliant success of Garrick, who had been his pupil, who had come to London at the same time with him, not in a much more prosperous state than himself, and whose talents he undoubtedly rated low, compared with his own. His being outstripped by his pupil in the race of immediate fame, as well as of fortune, probably made him feel some indignation, as thinking that whatever might be Garrick's merits in his art, the reward was too great when compared with what the most successful efforts of literary labour could attain. At all periods of his life, Johnson used to talk contemptuously of players. But in this work, he speaks of them with peculiar acrimony, for which perhaps there was formerly too much reason from the licentious and dissolute manners of those engaged in that profession. It is but justice to add that in our own time such a change has taken place that there is no longer room for such an unfavourable distinction. His schoolfellow and friend, Dr. Taylor, told me a pleasant anecdote of Johnson's triumphing over his pupil, David Garrick. When that great actor had played some little time at Goodman's Fields, Johnson and Taylor went to see him perform, and afterwards passed the evening at a tavern with him and old Gifford. Johnson, who was ever depreciating stage players, after censuring some mistakes in emphasis which Garrick had committed in the course of that night's acting, said, The players, sir, have got a kind of rant, with which they run on, without any regard either to accent or emphasis. Both Garrick and Gifford were offended at this sarcasm, 
and endeavoured to refute it. Upon which Johnson rejoined, Well now, I'll give you something to speak, with which you are little acquainted, and then we shall see how just my observation is. That shall be the criterion. Let me hear you repeat the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. Both tried at it, said Dr. Taylor, and both mistook the emphasis, which should be upon not and false witness. Johnson put them right, and enjoyed his victory with great glee. Note. I suspect Dr. Taylor was inaccurate in this statement. The emphasis should be equally upon shout and not, as both concur to form the negative injunction. And false witness, like the other acts prohibited in the Decalogue, should not be marked by any peculiar emphasis, but only be distinctly enunciated. End of note. His Life of Savage was no sooner published than the following liberal praise was given to it in The Champion, a periodical paper. This pamphlet is, without flattery to its author, as just and well written a piece as of its kind I ever saw, so that at the same time that it highly deserves, it certainly stands very little in need of this recommendation. As to the history of the unfortunate person whose memoirs compose this work, it is certainly penned with equal accuracy and spirit, of which I am so much the better judge, as I know many of the facts mentioned to be strictly true and very fairly related. Besides, it is not only the story of Mr. Savage, but innumerable instances relating to other persons and other affairs, which renders this a very amusing and, withal, a very instructive and valuable performance. The author's observations are short, significant, and just, as his narrative is remarkably smooth and well disposed. His reflections open to all the recesses of the human heart, and, in a word, a more just or pleasant, a more engaging or a more improving treatise on all the excellencies and defects of human nature is scarce to be found in our own, or perhaps any other language. Note, this character of the life of Savage was not written by Fielding, as has been supposed, but most probably by Ralph, who, as appears from the minutes of the partners of the champion, in the possession of Mr. Reed of Staple Inn, succeeded Fielding in his share of the paper, before the date of that eulogium. End of note. Johnson's partiality for Savage made him entertain no doubt of his story, however extraordinary and improbable. It never occurred to him to question his being the son of the Countess of Macclesfield, of whose unrelenting barbarity he so loudly complained, and the particulars of which are related in so strong and affecting a manner in Johnson's life of him. Johnson was certainly well warranted in publishing his narrative, however offensive it might be to the lady and her relations, because her alleged unnatural and cruel conduct to her son, and shameful avowal of guilt, 
were stated in a life of Savage, now lying before me, which came out so early as 1727, and no attempt had been made to confute it, or to punish the author or printer as a libeller. But for the honour of human nature, we should be glad to find the shocking tale not true, and, from a respectable gentleman connected with the lady's family, I have received such information and remarks, as joined to my own inquiries, will, I think, render it at least somewhat doubtful, especially when we consider that it must have originated from the person himself who went by the name of Richard Savage. If the maxim, falsum in uno, falsum in omnibus, were to be received without qualification, the credit of Savage's narrative, as conveyed to us, would be annihilated, for it contains some assertions which beyond a question are not true. 1. In order to induce a belief that Earl Rivers, on account of a criminal connection with whom Lady Macclesfield is said to have been divorced from her husband by Act of Parliament, had a peculiar anxiety about the child which she bore to him, it is alleged that his lordship gave him his own name, and had it duly recorded in the register of St. Andrew's Holborn. I have carefully inspected that register, but no such entry is to be found. 2. It is stated that Lady Macclesfield, having lived for some time upon very uneasy terms with her husband, thought a public confession of adultery the most obvious and expeditious method of obtaining her liberty. And Johnson, assuming this to be true, stigmatises her with indignation as the wretch who had, without scruple, proclaimed herself an adulteress. But I have perused the journals of both Houses of Parliament at the period of her divorce, and there find it authentically ascertained that so far from voluntarily submitting to the ignominious charge of adultery, she made a strenuous defence by her counsel, the bill having been first moved 15th of January 1697 in the House of Lords, and proceeded on, with various applications for time to bring up witnesses at a distance, etc., at intervals, till the 3rd of March, when it passed. It was brought to the Commons by a message from the Lords, the 5th of March, proceeded on the 7th, 10th, 11th, 14th and 15th, on which day, after a full examination of witnesses on both sides and hearing of counsel, it was reported without amendments, passed and carried to the Lords that Lady Macclesfield was convicted of the crime of which she was accused, cannot be denied. But the question now is, whether the person calling himself Richard Savage was her son. It has been said that when Earl Rivers was dying, and anxious to provide for all his natural children, he was informed by Lady Macclesfield that her son by him was dead. Whether then, shall we believe that this was a malignant lie, invented by a mother to prevent her own child from receiving the bounty of his father, which was accordingly the consequence, 
if the person whose life Johnson wrote was her son? Or shall we not rather believe that the person who then assumed the name of Richard Savage was an impostor, being in reality the son of the shoemaker, under whose wife's care Lady Macclesfield's child was placed, that after the death of the real Richard Savage, he attempted to personate him, and that the fraud being known to Lady Macclesfield, he was therefore repulsed by her with just resentment. There is a strong circumstance in support of the last supposition, though it has been mentioned as an aggravation of Lady Macclesfield's unnatural conduct, and that is, her having prevented him from obtaining the benefit of a legacy left to him by Mrs. Lloyd, his godmother. For if there was such a legacy left, his not being able to obtain payment of it must be imputed to his consciousness that he was not the real person. The just inference should be that by the death of Lady Macclesfield's child before its godmother, the legacy became lapsed, and therefore that Johnson's Richard Savage was an impostor. If he had a title to the legacy, he could not have found any difficulty in recovering it, for had the executors resisted his claim, the whole costs, as well as the legacy, must have been paid by them if he had been the child to whom it was given. The talents of Savage, and the mingled fire, rudeness, pride, meanness, and ferocity of his character, concur in making it credible that he was fit to plan and carry on an ambitious and daring scheme of imposture, similar instances of which have not been wanting in higher spheres in the history of different countries, and have had a considerable degree of success. Yet, on the other hand, to the companion of Johnson, who through whatever medium he was conveyed into this world, be it ever so doubtful, to whom related or by whom begot, was unquestionably a man of no common endowments, we must allow the weight of general repute as to his status or parentage, though illicit. And supposing him to be an impostor, it seems strange that Lord Tyrconnell, the nephew of Lady Macclesfield, should patronise him, and even admit him as a guest in his family. Lastly, it must ever appear very suspicious that three different accounts of the life of Richard Savage one published in The Plain Dealer in 1724, another in 1727, and another by the powerful pen of Johnson in 1744, and all of them while Lady Macclesfield was alive, should, notwithstanding the severe attacks upon her, have been suffered to pass without any public and effectual contradiction. Note Trusting to Savage's information, Johnson represents this unhappy man's being received as a companion by Lord Tyrconnell, and pensioned by his lordship, as if posterior to Savage's conviction and pardon. But I am assured that Savage had received the voluntary bounty of Lord Tyrconnell, and had been dismissed by him, 
long before the murder was committed, and that his lordship was very instrumental in procuring Savage's pardon, by his intercession with the Queen, through Lady Hertford. If, therefore, he had been desirous of preventing the publication by Savage, he would have left him to his fate. Indeed, I must observe that although Johnson mentions that Lord Tyrconnell's patronage of Savage was, upon his promise to lay aside his design of exposing the cruelty of his mother, Johnson's works 8, 124, the great biographer has forgotten that he himself has mentioned that Savage's story had been told several years before in The Plain Dealer, from which he quotes this strong saying of the generous Sir Richard Steele, that the inhumanity of his mother had given him a right to find every good man his father. Ibid, page 104. At the same time, it must be acknowledged that Lady Macclesfield and her relations might still wish that her story should not be brought into more conspicuous notice by the satirical pen of Savage. End of note. I have thus endeavoured to sum up the evidence upon the case, as fairly as I can, and the result seems to be that the world must vibrate in a state of uncertainty as to what was the truth. End of section 12